Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There they sit at the bottom of the ocean floor, glimmering in the moonlight. Inside a dream so real, awake feels fake. Can I just stay here, where dark is home, no fear? Where light marks the path of its seer. They were laid long ago, waiting to be discovered, ready to hatch for the soul. There they rise, on the bottom of the ocean floor. Diani's new album, Under, is now available on all platforms. Hey, I'm Anupa Mystery. Welcome back to another episode of Burnout, a podcast featuring short conversations about creative sustainability with working artists from Toronto and beyond. Some still don't know what to do. Some still don't know what to do. The late jazz and literary critic Albert Murray wrote about the blues as an indigenous American tradition of resilience, an active and ongoing process or mode of confrontation and improvisation. Resilience is the blues. The blues is resilience. In this conversation with Sait, who you might also remember as Saida Baba Taliba, we talk about the blues as a kind of grounding in ancestry, self-identification, and, yep, resilience. Um, please also be forewarned that this was one of my first attempts at doing the Zoom podcast thing. So the sound isn't the best, but still, it is one of my favorite conversations. There's that deep Toronto music and nightlife backstory that you know I love, but also Sate and I talk about being band nerds and our love of tarot. We also talk about her mom. Sate's mom is the late great singer Salome Bay, who performed together with her siblings throughout the 1950s and 60s as Andy Bay and the Bay Sisters. Sate spent quite a bit of time speaking about her mother and her mother's legacy and just weeks after this conversation, Salome Bay passed away. So before we get to it, let's take a moment to sit with the blues vibrations of Salome Bay. From the deep of the sea to the heavens above 
people fighting and dying, cheating and lying, falling in love. It's like they say, you'd better jump in the water, get your feet wet, dip in your pinky, won't help get set. You're gonna fall so much in love with me. When the snow starts to fall And we're east of the wind And west of the cold And south of them all You need someone To hold you running away Won't help you know how I'm gonna chase and get you somehow You're gonna fall so much in love So my name is Sate. I identify as a creator, a performer, um, uh, a vessel. What I do is sing and I act and I dance and I write. You tarot, you, you, you read tarot cards? Yes, I, I'm into astrology, numerology, all things stars and and planetary and earthly um you went to a performing arts high school yeah yeah i was a dancer in school so that i was dance major i actually didn't uh, the only music that i studied in school was i was playing the tuba i always wanted to be that that girl that person that was like there are no black women playing tuba so I want to be that person right I ended up playing the tenor sax that is a heavy ass instrument for like <laughs> a small like a you know about to approach puberty child to be carrying a rap <laughs> yeah same with tuba <laughs> yes exactly why the fuck would you pick tuba I was living downtown and and taking the subway all the way to North York with a tuba because I wanted to be the black girl playing tuba and I was always the only one there was never anyone I would be curious if there's like like a life lesson you've learned from your time as a tuba player like what lesson <laughs> does the tuba carry that stay with you I mean I still I have a tuba in my studio I'm looking at it right now one of when I started doing actually the phone demos when I created my band I had a vision to create a soul orchestra. Uh, uh, I called it the rockestra, soul rockestra. So instead of bass, I had tuba. Instead of guitar, I had cello and viola. And I, I was just wanting to play with textures and sound. It was one of the instruments that really um, taught me how to support, mm. how to hold space. And I mean, the next, the next space where I was taught how to hold space was singing background vocals, you know, knowing where, where to fit in, but still holding, holding it down. Tuba holds it down. That's what a tuba is. A tuba holds, holds it down. Yeah. 
it, it, when you go and listen to a drum line or, or um, you know, the tuba is the bass mm-hmm. along with the drum. So it's drum and bass. That's what holds it down. It's never been a question. <laughs> I've never been asked. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like maybe you don't, I, I've never uh, been interviewed by someone who's like wounded by having to carry a tenor sax around as a child. <laughs> I'm like, there's got to be a lesson in this suffering. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I was singing backgrounds on Canadian Idol for three years. So got to sing backgrounds for like Enrique Iglesias and Roger Hodgson from Super Tramp and Dennis DeYoung from Styx and um, Tom Jones and Paul Anka and like all kinds of like Anne Murray and, you know, all kinds of very interesting... uh, different folks uh angelique kijo oh amazing one that happened out of like what and she's oh my god incredible Whew. um and then you know like a lot of hip-hop people like socrates and chocolate and mm-hmm. um and oh gosh yeah, I've sang on a few albums. All of the names you listed was like the biggest flex ever. <laughs> like Anne Murray and Chocolair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Maestro. Actually, Maestro Fresh West, a lot. It's basically all legends. Legends, yeah. yeah. I, o- I only roll with legends. <laughs> I mean, shit. You know what? I started in the womb of a legend my mother is Salome Bay so yes she she is a legend period um so really I only roll with legends well it's funny because I was listening to Andy Bay a bunch last week (laughs) there was something else going on there and I was like doing a million other things and I was like what am I trying what is the message here I don't know is it the music what's going on I put two and three and four and five together and I was like oh that's Sate's uncle yeah 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 it's it's uh I'm constantly in awe of my family like of my uncle and my mother and my aunt because they had a group together called Andy Bay and the Bay Sisters I had a conversation with one of their managers. Mm-hmm. He's 94 years old. He's still like, dude is still kicking it and sharp. Like knowing how, how incredible they are and hearing the records and them moving me and being like, maybe it's a bias because it's in my blood. And it's, but it's like, it sounds so good the record company that signed them which was which is which was a big record company at the time in the 60s wasn't ready to promote mm-hmm. and get behind three beautiful this is what he said beautiful african american people and put them on the cover they wanted harry belafonte and lena mm-hmm. horn here we are 60 years later we're still dealing with this bullshit. Yeah, I mean, and this is why I thought like now would be a really great time to speak with you because um, not only do you have this family connection to this history, um, but you also have your own history as someone who's 
kind of an, like an, an OG, if I may say it, in, in the Canadian music scene, right? And um, your mom was in this band with uh, her brother and sister, as you mentioned, and then moved to Canada and kind of became known as this this blues icon. Yeah. Um, so with Andy Bay and the Bay Sisters, it was a trio. My my uncle Andy uh, played piano, and mm-hmm. they sang in harmony in unison. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Like I'm I'm getting chills just thinking about it. Um, so listen and and uh, find it if you mm-hmm. can, and just experience it. In I guess the early '60s they came to Toronto as a group and were told to look for a guy named Archie Aline. Mm-hmm. And um, when they went looking for Archie Aline, they walked into this club that my father was um, managing, I think. And I mean, the the rest was history. They met and they were like, what? Okay. So she was going back and forth and, and also was doing things on Broadway. So there were, there were a couple of shows, a few shows actually that she did on Broadway. Um, one was called your arms too short to box with God. And that was mm-hmm. Finette Carroll and Mickey Grant. Um, and um they were nominated for a Grammy for the, the soundtrack of the, the music for that. Um, and she played Mother Mary. Um, and um, she was in a, a show that originated here in Toronto. I think it was called Love Me, Love My Children. And then when it moved to New York off Broadway, it became Justine or it's the other way around. Uh, she was in Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, which was another Vinette Carroll. Now, Vinette Carroll is also the first black woman to win uh, a Tony Award. Mm. She, she also actually, she had auditioned for Hair here in Toronto when, when the play was up. and. Uh, she didn't get in the 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 auditioners were like you look a little too much like a housewife a little too plain and she was like that's interesting so she went to the states and auditioned and that's where she met Galt McDermott and Jerome Ragney who were the writers of Hair and um, she ended up um, being on the soundtrack to the movie so they loved her oh, voice wow. and they were like, okay, we've got to work with you. And then after that, there was a show that they wrote called Dude. And Dude, uh, my mother was Mother Earth in Dude. The music was incredible. The show was shit. It lasted for like two weeks. Um, but out of that, of course, they recorded the... the um, original cast recording there's there's that there um nell carter was in that and then because they loved my mother's voice so much they decided to uh record songs from dude with just my mother singing 
and wow. backgrounds were like Sissy Houston, Whitney oh Houston's God. mom, right? Yeah, yeah. But you know, my mom, my mom and Sissy and Dion Warwick and every they're all from Newark, New Jersey. So people knew each other, you know, Sarah Vaughn from Newark. They knew each other. These people, you know, they run together. Um, so that's what my mom was doing, like, I'd say 60s, 70s. Um, meanwhile, like, still coming, coming back and forth to Toronto. Like, I always saw my mom as that lone Black woman on TV. She was always like in a variety show. She was in the, you know, Tala Cranston did the, the specials and my mom was there, her right. and Dan Hill, or, you know, she was on CBC. They call her Canada's first lady of jazz and blues. You know, she was that person. Um, still writing plays, directing plays, um, mm-hmm. writing plays that were very centered on um, blues women the history of blues women. There's so much more of her. My mother has dementia, so there's a lot of story and um, history that I'm, uh, I'm not gonna get from her. Wow. And, and your dad was involved in the clubs and in, you know, as a manager, I know he was a promoter too. So my dad, my father. Okay. Yeah. And I was going to get into that, but I was like, let me finish with my mom. Yes. Manager, but first and foremost, a a restaurateur. Oh, okay. There were a couple of restaurants that he managed. He had an after hours club um, during like the Yorkville coffee house time. He had a after hours booze can called the first floor club, which was right where the, um, the reference library is on that street. My recollection understanding of the stories that were told um, were that there was this club that they had that when black musicians would come and play Young Street because Young Street was the place to play, um, they would all come to the first Fuller Club to play after. So it was Muddy Waters would play there or Dizzy Gillespie or Miles Davis, like is also because of his best friend, Archie, Aline. So they, they ran the streets together. They're two very, very handsome men. I don't know if this was happening at that time because this was the sixties, but I have also read about like how maybe this was a little bit earlier. I mean, it might've also been, I'm sure it also happened then. Um, but that, um, a lot of these black American artists would come through and play Young Street and even, you know, Montreal had its scene also. Um, but it was only open to white patrons, you know, that that um, black Torontonians um, or even the performers themselves couldn't just gain access um, to some of these places as patrons. Um, Let's debunk that myth. That's that's a that's a myth that there wasn't racism blatant, nasty racism here in Toronto. Because there was a lot of folk around that neighborhood, in the programming, there was a lot of folk in that club. Like Ian and Sylvia Tyson played there separately. Um, Ian would play there with Don Franks, who's another like um, 
if you know Cree Summer and Rainbow Sun, that's their father, who he was he was playing with Ian as a duo, and Sylvia would come in and and she would do comedy sets, and and then it became Ian and Sylvia. But Gordon Lightfoot used to come to um, the First Floor Club and just hang out there because he was a jazz guy. Actually, he was a huge jazz guy before he became like the folk guy but knowing that my my dad was there and my I call him my uncle Archie was there that there was a place for black people to come and be In an interview, you said that the Bay family is punk rock in their own way. And I like that. Can you talk about that? I feel like you've kind of teased at some of these things, but what is what do you mean by that? We are free. We are um, going against the grain, going against the rules. And fuck, punk rock is, is blues, is Black music anyway. So we are constantly... Um, uh, uh, pushing against the system, what is not in the air, uh, we're creating that stuff, and and it's still like anti-system, anti-establishment. Even though my mother said, even though people would call her Canada's first lady of jazz and blues, she's like, first of all, jazz is a feeling; it's not a genre, just like soul. It's not a genre. Mm-hmm. You can't teach people jazz. You just know it, you know. And, and I would say the same thing of blues. It is, I mean, music is a feeling. It's, we're just, we're just not trying to do it the way people tell us to do it. We're doing it the way we know how to do it. To have free will and choice and, 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 tap into their inner self and say, I feel that something in me moves with that. We've now, we've now put this structure around you're white, you're black, you get more, you don't. Um, this is how the system is. So we've got to keep this contained. Uh, let's put a white face on this black song that resonates. Yeah, we get it. Oh my God, we get it. And in the purest sense, purest sense, we get it. But when you, when you fuck with shit, that's when it becomes impure. The beginnings of my musical career, well, I will always say it started with my mother. 
And then Black Sam was the first time that I was expressing as a as not singing with my mom. Well, you've been singing and performing for over 20 years. Um, I guess maybe we could start with the group that you were a part of. And I feel like this will also tie in some of this genre experimenting, which has kind of genre experimenting expression, let's call it that, um, that has been with you also this whole time. Black Sam was um, a multi-expression of the blues. It was three of us, three female vocals. So we were were kind of wanting to be like um, on vogue with a band. I love that. <laughs> but when I say on Vogue with a band, it's because we had a lot of harmonies, a lot mm. of really intricate um, interweaving harmonies. Washington Savage, he rested peace. He, um, he was our uh, vocal arranger and music director and... Um, the big visionary behind it, um, him and my sister Tuku did a lot of the writing. Um, Shannon also, like we all did writing, but most of the writing came from Tuku in Washington. Um, Adrian X was guitar player. Sekou Lamamba was playing drums and, um, and JK was playing bass in the last incarnation of us. Like in the era when, when the Black Rock Coalition was just coming up as Black people expressing rock or punk rock or heavy metal or hard rock or anything, there was no place for us right. to, to gather and be supported pre-Afropunk. And I remember when that came to Toronto, I remember seeing that in the, in the, in the pamphlet at Planet Africa. And I was like, I have to be there. This is, that's my shit. There's a movie about us. Oh my God. I'd be curious to know like what, what the scene was at that time or what the vibe was, you know? Um, Queen Street was totally different. There were so many more clubs between um, Bathurst and University. Like Bamboo is there. Of course, of course, the um, Horseshoe is there. Rivoli was there. Um, uh, the Big Bop mm-hmm. and Reverb, Velvet Underground, mm-hmm. Bovine Sex Club, and there were local fashion designers. Mm-hmm. all along queen street like queen looks so different people were going out and listening to music it felt like um there were a lot of just different bands just coming up and trying shit and you know the 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 sound was really raw artsy and kind of out there and kind of just like I remember one show where we did at Lee's Palace where I did a whole um pas de deux like a, a duet with a friend of mine a whole dance break in the middle of a song that I was singing so I started the song and I sang this song Holy Water and um it was a song written 
about Jeff Buckley when he had died. And in the middle of the song, there's this whole breakdown and it, you know, smoke and lights. And I took, peeled off clothes and just did this whole dance break. And my friend came on and we did this whole improvisation. And then, and then I came back to the microphone like five minutes later, like, you know, heaven has found us finding your way, you know, and that was it. We were definitely the only ones doing that. <laughs> People kind of started to, to look at us as that kind of vibe, the experimental, weird, kind of kooky uh, Black people, that outer space kind of, and we're like, cool, yeah, that's what we do. And I remember, like, Tupu and I getting, uh, going out and postering, okay, we're going we're gonna to poster Queen Street, okay, out with buckets of glue and fucking posters and climbing up on, on, on like poles and stapling or poster like gluing and shit and handing out flyers to people. Hey, you like music? Yeah. You should come and see us. You know, just that's, that's what we, that's how we were doing shit. Um, I'm curious how like you went from there to then kind of doing solo stuff. I so when the band broke up, um, a, a few things broke up in my life. Like I was married and broke up with my husband, and so everything just changed. You know, it was just like single mom then, and just like okay, I went through a stage where I was just writing a lot of poetry, and specifically like a lot of erotic poetry and erotic like short stories and stuff and just just exploring just looking and just you know drawing and just 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 trying to find myself I went from being with singing with my mother which is support to singing in a band which is still not really solo it's support so then coming out on my own, I was like, I don't know who the fuck I am. I don't know what I want to say. I don't know how I want to say it. So many people were like, what are, what are you doing? What are you saying? How, when are you going to do your own thing? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> the tuba vibes. <laughs> yeah, I'll just hold it down. <laughs> fuck, it's still, it's, it's crazy how much it's still scary to just stand out there by yourself like tell your own story and I started writing with a guy named Robert Strauss and it was it was like soul house stuff so you know hey we want the big big black voice woman on this stuff that sounds mm -hmm. like really groovy and funky and stuff like can you do that yeah sure i can do that yeah they write some songs oh okay okay um sure i think i can you know um and we wrote a few songs and he put out a couple of albums and um and it started getting me into like, oh, what do I want to do? How do I want to sound? And, and also in and around that time, 
I was hosting a weekly curated open mic of female singers, women singers. Um, the night was called Skiffle in My Ear. So mm. I was scouring my space for like local female singers and listening to their music and going, oh, that would be cool. Zaki was on there, Witch Prophet was on. Um, uh, who else? Myrna, uh, uh, who used to go by Aya. Sarita Neal. Skiffle in My Ear happened at Chow Edie, which is no longer. It used to be um, a venue. There was Andy Pool Hall, and Chow Edie was right next to it. You picture this. You walk down the little stairs into Chow Edie, and there's a stage, and there's a keyboard, and there's a big red couch. On the, key, on, on the stage. We, were, we would interchange. We would either sit on the couch or we would be performing. If we're sitting on the couch, we had a microphone and we were singing backgrounds for, for the people we were supporting. Um, and it was all being broken down. All of the songs were just broken down to piano and voice. That's, that's all we were doing. Um, the, the piano player that I had was Thompson, Thompson, Egbo, Egbo who's, um, he's an incredible pianist. He's brilliant. And so he was like poster child for Regent Park and the, the School of Music and everything. Um, he was super, super quiet and shy and young. And, and one day, that motherfucker got a beer in his hand. And I had never, like I had never heard him speak to me on stage. He would just play the song. He'd be like, cool, yeah. He got a beer. And from that moment on, I met Thompson, the, the, the wisecracking asshole that he is. And I say this with all of the love in my heart. I love that man so much. It became a, a fucking comedy show. I saw Vinx do it for the first time. He was using a looping pedal. So I started using a looping pedal then. Um, I grew up on fame. So I was like, mom, put me in a school like fame. And that's always been my life, you know? Um, so um, 2009 was when I, I, I think I put out the phone demos. Like at the time, it was my phone. My phone was with me all the time. Yeah. I'm like, oh, let me just tape it on my phone really quickly. And just listening to it, it was like, oh, this is like the, the analog from, you know, phonograph records. It, it was to capture that raw, in the moment, blues era type sound there was no filter on it there was no effect it was like that's what you got that's what you got when when alan lomax went out in the field and and put a put a microphone um in the midst of all these black people singing and and then um soon after i put out scream so i ended up kind of producing a few songs on the album, not really intending to and not really knowing what the fuck I was doing. Um, and, and I listened back and I'm like, oh, God, if I could, oh, God, oh, I wish I had a producer for that, you know. But 
I did the best that I could and got it out and got around to doing Red, Black and Blue, which was an, another interesting journey because I, I, um, I crowdfunded um, Red, Black and Blue through Pledge Music. Um, and um, I ended up doing three EPs for, for Red, Black and Blue and had the people who, who bought them to help me in ranking what or or choosing the top 10 songs to go on the album so i polled it um and and that's how i put out that album that was your that was your first album as sate that was my first album as sate binary like resistant to change world where it's like you know if you change your name that means it's a new identity and it's like it it might reflect an inner shift or something like that but the expression you know is still you yes yes it's it's funny I was myself resistant to um stepping into Sate I was fighting this fight um, of my name, Saida Baba Taliba. And people are really, really um, ignorant. I got messages like, you sound like you're part of the Taliban. I'm like, fuck off. Like, fuck off. And so, so I was really like, fuck you, say my name, wrap it, get it on your tongue, pronounce it properly, do not be lazy. And, and it was just a fight. It was a fight. Not only was it my name, it was my blackness. So when I showed up, it was like, oh, so, so you do like soul or jazz or something? And like, no, rock, rock and roll. Sate was, am I leaving the fight of Saida Babatsaliba behind? Mm. And yeah. no, because I was telling a friend of mine about the shift to SATE, and she said, oh, I see it as an acronym. I see it as SAIDA at the essence. And I was like, that's it. Thank you. Oh, that's beautiful. God. I take it. And that's not even what I intended at all, because SATE means to satisfy to the fullest. Mm-hmm. I haven't changed. I haven't changed the fight. In fact, it, it, it made me ground deeper in the fight and just right. become more me. It, I feel like it's like, I, I'm sorry, like this, this happens every single time, but I always find something and I stick with it. And I'm like, it's the tuba. It's like, take up your full space. Actually, you know what it is? It's the emperor. 
Um, okay. <laughs> Are we going there now? I think we're going there. There's the segue. <laughs> is that your birth card? Oh, no. My birth card is justice. Ooh. I know. I don't have a relationship with that card yet. So, what's your birth card? Empress. Ooh. That's a. I need to learn to receive. Oh, I'm, I'm. Yo, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> we we have taken uh, a tarot course, the same tarot course. I wish I knew you were there, shit. <laughs> but now I know we can still have these conversations. But pretty incredible um, reimagining, or as she says, a rewilding of the tarot, and and encouraging um, moving out of these very limiting understandings of the cards, not just asking you to buy into her interpretations, but actually really like it's kindling for a lot of your own curiosity about the cards. That's what I find. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, I, so this next album that I'm working on is called the fool. It it is me, the fool, on my fool's journey. I love that card. Me too. And, and, and I'm also creating my own deck right now. So I'm, yes, I'm starting with just doing the major arcana right now. So working through that with Lindsay in this course, is so um, wow! It's it's so it's so beautiful and so grounding. Like this this quarantine has been very interesting. We all are in many ways experiencing our own version of a test. I feel like I have just like fooled myself into the test. Like by that I mean like I am embodying the fool every day. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and a lot of heating too. Like like really um, not taking the invitation to barrel ahead, not taking the invitation to give in to the panic and anxiety of the moment. I mean, this is this is something that we started off the conversation before we hit record. Um, you asked me, how was my morning? And I said, I, you know, I, I start for the past month, I've started my morning uh, getting on my bike and riding to a park and sitting underneath a tree and writing in my journal and reading tarot and just just listen and watch and observe um, outside of me and inside of me. I never allowed myself that time. I never felt mm. that I was worthy of that time because you have to do this. You have to make money. You have to worry about this and and here we are in this place where where it is it is promoting fear <laughs> to the nth degree and i am not ascribing to that i don't want to ascribe to that because i can do that on my own without anybody outside telling me to do that i am untangling that stuff because that's not how I want to live. I want to live in joy. I want to live in presence, in center, in, in like, like in the good shit, because there's so much good shit. There's so much good shit. And 
it's interesting too what you just said made me think that um we're in a heightened state of like that induced fear but that that's kind of our default anyway you know it's like if it wasn't this it would be something else right yeah beyond money that's the biggest currency on this on this planet fear fear you know like cuz motherfuckers can go out and print up money it's not for a lack of money watching observing what is how how systemic racism is is being dismantled and the the um the need for it to be dismantled why the need is so imperative is because of fear i would agree it's with that because it so race is a construct that means that essentially racism doesn't exist well we have to know that it doesn't exist based on the fact that race doesn't exist race only exists for power and for fear and to, that to be mind like that to be that that energy we forget that we're energetic human beings and money is only energy it's only a representation of energy so that thing that we're putting all this energy people people go oh yeah you're so woo woo and whatever and you, energy and energy and vibes and everything but that's what we are you put your hard earned energy into a job to get the energy of money out we have to dismantle the shit that's keeping us in this this energetic loop of fear yeah the reason why like i wanted to come back in this moment cuz i was going to take a quarantine break like let me just take one thing off my plate but then the uprisings happened and i was like i don't know what to do maybe i don't need to do anything and then i was like i really want to talk to some people in the community here about resilience mm-hmm. you know i think about how my my black friends and peers and people who i admire are always called to the front to talk about pain to talk about anger to talk about violence and um i feel like this podcast has always been a place for lots of different kinds of people but a lot of black artists to come on and talk about what their definition of resilience is and of course it ties into who you are and your personal identity and the way you move through the world and all of that to say i mean resilience to me is um learning how to stay mindful and stay still just stay present in the face of fear so t- tying it back to what you're talking about about fear so i think maybe to close how you're thinking about not giving into fear and how how that connects to like your resiliency practices listening is a huge thing listening to myself and really um making it a practice to show up for myself i think that's what it is showing up for myself and showing up for myself means just like whatever i need really um trusting 
that I know what's best for me, even in the face of like making mistakes and fucking up and offending people and hurting people intentionally or in unintentionally, but to, to live as truthfully and as honest in this body. Um, because, because I don't know, because, because I've been programmed to fear. When you watch a baby learning how to walk, they just do that. That is nature. They just do it because that's the next thing that they do. If they thought the way that we think about ourselves, they would never walk or talk or eat. So it is resiliency is, is being a baby. I had elders. I had people that I looked to and knew that they were the ones that, like if I was co- coming up in, in the scene, they, they were the gatekeepers. They were the ones that were like, but it might've been because the fact that it was my mom that they were like, oh, we know who you are. We're watching you. But I felt like everyone was watching all the young ones coming up. And we always knew those are the people that we're looking to. Those are the people we give respect to. But I don't know that that's the same in this generation right now. I don't know that they know who their elders are, who've been like, who who laid the foundation for them to be able to just just be online and, and not have to poster and flyer and just just do a, have a viral hit. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that has to do with industry and capital. And so people find mentors based on what what can you do for me? But then what happens to the people that are not elders that are right in the middle? Because I'm, I'm in the middle. You know, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm older than 30, but the 30s to the, the, like, 40s, they also need the mentorship, but they're still holding holding the space, holding down. They're still the tuba. They're the tubas. I'm going to get a tuba tattooed on me just for, just for this conversation. That's really deep for me, just to really wrap my brain around why the tuba and, and what was the lesson of that? Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of Burnout. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave a review. It's really important for helping people find the show, but it also makes me feel nice too. You can also find me on Instagram at Burnout Pod and subscribe to the Burnout newsletter at anupa.substack.com. And that's where I write about finding creative inspiration in art and out in the world. The show's theme music is by Lal. The song is called Dark Beings. Original music provided by Jamal Padmore and artwork by Ahmad Studio. Thank you for listening. See you again soon. When we started this, there was about 10 tents. Now we're over 100. You think we're at a trailer park. I should start charging a mission. In the middle of an overdose crisis and a housing crisis, a pandemic happened. We were supposed to shelter in place, but there were outbreaks in the shelters, so a lot of people ended up pitching tents. I have four tents put together all in one. It looks like a condo. I have a balcony and, uh, and my gazebo and... <laughs> 
I'm Aliyah Pabani. We Are Not the Virus is a four-part podcast series that takes you inside Toronto's encampments. Each episode, you'll hear from residents about the creative ways they're making a home in one of the most expensive cities in the world.